0: This is the word of God from Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35. Jesus tells a parable about forgiveness. Then Peter approached him and asked, Lord, how many times must I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? As many as seven times? I tell you not. As many as seven, Jesus replied, but seventy times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle accounts, one who owed 10,000 talents was brought before him. Since he did not have the money to pay it back, his master commanded that he, his wife, his children, and everything he had be sold to pay the debt. At this, the servant fell face down before him and said, Be patient with me, and I will pay you everything. Then the master of that servant had compassion, released him, and forgave the loan. That servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him, started choking him, and said, pay what you owe. At this, his fellow servant fell down and began begging him, be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he wasn't willing. Instead, He went and threw him into prison until he could pay what was owed. When the other servants saw what had taken place, they were deeply distressed and went and reported to their master everything that had happened. Then, after he had summoned him, his master said to him, "'You wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you also have mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you?' And because he was angry,' His master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay everything that was owed. So also my heavenly Father will do to you unless every one of you forgives his brother or sister from your heart. The word of God for the people of God.
1: I'd encourage you to take a copy of God's word now and turn to Matthew chapter 6. That's page 859 in the Bible, under the seats in front of you. As Jeff, Pastor Jeff mentioned, my name is Isaiah. I am one of the pastors here. And uh, we have been going through a series through the Lord's Prayer and talking about what it means to practice partnership with God. So question for you as we begin. What do you feel guilty about? What in your life and experiences right now is weighing you down with guilt. Our culture would have us believe that you create what is right or wrong for you. And I do the same for me. That belief is called moral relativism. If this is really true, If I define what is right and wrong for me, and you define what is right and wrong for you, then shouldn't guilt evaporate? Why does guilt exist if moral relativism is true? Do we see guilt evaporating in our culture? Well, the answer to that is emphatically no. Guilt is very much alive and well in a culture that says it doesn't believe in a fixed rightness or wrongness. In fact, our culture is actually obsessed with how to absolve ourselves of guilt. Wilford McClay taught at UTC in the early 2000s. He's now a professor at the University of Oklahoma and Hillsdale College. In 2017, he wrote an article titled, The Strange Persistence of Guilt. It's a very long article. And in it, McClay argues that every person, even secular, non-religious people, and you may identify with that, every person, he says, experiences guilt because we have an individual sense of responsibility, If we didn't feel responsibility, then we wouldn't feel guilt. And let's be honest, our culture calls us to feel guilty about a lot of things, doesn't it? Everything from how many animals are down at the shelter to the social effects of climate change. We are made to feel guilty. And society knows that, Feeling or being responsible, plus no action or insufficient action, will lead to personal guilt. But in a society that views Christianity as annoying at best and toxic at worst, what are people to do with guilt? If we can't find forgiveness for whatever real or perceived cultural transgressions, if we can't find forgiveness for those in, say, the message of the gospel, then what are we to do with our guilt? Well, McClay argues that the new atonement society uses, instead of the gospel of Jesus Christ, this new atonement for guilt is victimhood. He explains if one wishes to be accounted innocent, one must find a way to make the claim that one cannot be held morally responsible, and this is precisely what the status of victimhood accomplishes. When one is a certifiable victim, one is released from responsibility, since a victim is someone who, by definition is not responsible for his condition, but can point to another who is responsible. Now, Maclay is not saying there aren't genuine victims in a broken world. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that our society has adopted victimhood as the means by which we atone for our guilt. So, friends, where does this leave us in our culture? Well, it leaves us with an innate sense of responsibility for the problems within us and the problems near us. Whether those problems are perceived environmental sin or the actual weight of sin in a nation whose history is rife with something as wicked as racism or the weight of personal transgression. And second, it leaves us with an overwhelming, nearly debilitating sense of guilt for these problems. And then third, it leaves us with no way to atone for that guilt except by playing the victim. And when we do that, we serve genuine victims in justice while we try to justify ourselves. And before we start thinking of this in terms of like legal environments we play the victim in our personal relationships all the time. Well, it's not my fault. It's what they did. I'm not responsible for how I just spoke and what I just said and what I just did. They, did you see what they did? Did you see what preceded that? So let's descend from the 40,000-foot cultural analysis level and get really uncomfortable, shall we? What guilt do you carry? Or, perhaps you're sitting here as a genuine victim of sin committed against you. What do you do with the guilt of another person against you? Now, we can try to explain guilt away as the last remains of Christianity in a post- Christian society. But at some point, the guilt we carry for what we have done has to be reckoned with and atoned for on some level other than by playing the victim, and we must have an answer for what to do with those guilty of sin against us. Because if we don't have an answer for both of those situations, then we individually and collectively as a society will go mad. Now, this intro has been lengthy for a reason, because guilt may very well be one of the clearest doorways to walk into the sunlight of genuine gospel-centered Christianity in a post-Christian culture. And as Jesus teaches his followers to pray, he addresses the universal human experience of guilt. So read with me or read along with me as I read Matthew 6, verse 9 through 15. Therefore, you should pray like this. Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive others their offenses, your heavenly Father will forgive you as well. But if you don't forgive others, your Father will not forgive your offenses. Three statements concerning this next petition, forgive our debts. Statement number one, guilt isn't the problem, sin is. Guilt isn't the problem, sin is. Now, before we go further, it's possible to feel guilt that we shouldn't feel. Unearned guilt. Guilt. But to be clear, Jesus is not addressing that sort of unearned guilt that others want us to feel but that we shouldn't feel. But we all know what it is to feel guilty because we've done something. So we often feel unearned guilt, but we often also feel earned guilt. We feel guilty because we are guilty. To get at the heart of this guilt, Jesus uses financial terminology, being in debt. Now, maybe you carry some credit card debt that you're trying to pay off, and you know what it's like to feel the weight of that responsibility. You owe something, something's required of you, and if you're unable to meet those payments, you know the creditors will come knocking or calling, as the case may be. Or maybe for you, it's your house mortgage or your car loan. That car that you're driving around, you know you only actually owe or uh, own a percentage of it. The bank owns the rest. And you owe them money in order to buy them out of their share. That's your obligation, that is your debt. And the Bible uses many, many different words to communicate what sin is. But here, it's interesting that the word Jesus chooses is this idea of a debt owed to God, our moral obligations to God that we cannot pay. God is our creator. He's our lawgiver, and he's our judge. Whether you believe it or not doesn't make it less true. God created you and me, and he gave us a law inwardly called our conscience. And He gave us His moral law in the Scriptures. And as a righteous judge, He will require the payment of that moral obligation one way or another. We're in His debt. So what do we owe Him? Well, we owe Him worship. We owe Him obedience. We owe Him service but we've refused to give God the obedience, worship, and service that He deserves, and instead we give that worship, obedience, and service to non-gods, to idols. And ultimately, self replaces God as the moral absolutist who must be obeyed and expressed. And those of us who've trusted our lives to Jesus we know what it is still to fall back into these sinful patterns and habits, don't we? After all, we've confessed as much this morning in our confession of sin. So guilt exists because sin exists, and sin puts us in God's debt. We have actively failed to give Him what He is due, and we have further compounded the problem day upon day. So in his article, McClay makes this statement that a lot of our activity, on a regular daily basis as human beings, our activity can be traced back to the powerful and inextinguishable need to feel morally justified. So what do you do on a given day? To feel? morally justified to deal with your guilt. When I read those words of McClay, I couldn't help but think of the movie The Imitation Game. Now to be clear, this is not a movie recommendation. My wife and I watched this particular movie with filters, but the illustration here is just too poignant to not comment on. The movie tells the story of Alan Turing, one of the pioneers of the computer industry, one of the geniuses who broke Germany's Enigma code machine during World War II. If there was anything decisive that sealed an Allied victory over the Germans, it was the breaking of the German code. So Turing was a war hero, and undoubtedly so. Turing was also a homosexual man. And it was a crime to commit homosexual activity in the UK at this time. And after World War II, he was arrested. And the screenwriters in the movie put him across the table from a detective trying to get at the truth. And he relates his entire story to the arresting Detective, the, the whole story of how he and some others broke the Enigma code and kept it secret. The whole story. And then Turing asked the detective, after telling him the whole story, he asks him this question. Now, you decide, am I a war hero or am I a criminal? The te- detective responds, I can't judge you. This is the answer of the moral relativist. Turing responds, Well then, you are of no help to me at all. No justification. No moral absolution. No help in moral relativism. We're left with our guilt. Now, it seems to me that the screenwriters wrote better than what they actually knew. Sin as debt is the problem, and guilt is the result. And we crave moral absolution, and we will look for it anywhere we can find it. Statement number two God forgives sin. there may be no better piece of good news that you hear this entire week than that statement. God forgives sin. This is the defining message of Christianity. The message of the gospel. J.I. Packer summarized it this way. God saves sinners. That's the good news. In pure grace, with no self-effort on our part, the creating, law-giving, righteous judge made a way for our guilt before him to be expunged. He made a way for we who are guilty human beings, unable to pay him our debt of worship, service, and obedience. He made a way for us to be declared not guilty, justified, to have our debt removed. The Son of God, truly God, became truly man, and He offered His Father the perfect, righteous worship, obedience, and service that we owed to God. He then, on our behalf, died as the Son of God to pay the debt of sin that we had incurred For all who repent of their sin and trust in Christ are forgiven. Guilt is gone. The debt is paid. And more than that, we then incur to our account that was in the negative, we incur to our account the righteousness of Jesus Christ. An infinite positive. The great exchange And when God forgives our sin and removes our guilt, we no longer seek justification and moral absolution in anywhere else, in anything else. But we have been freed to live our lives before God in love and worship and service, obeying and serving Him out of love. Maybe you remember the story of Jesus washing the feet of his disciples in John 13. As he gets to Peter, Peter will, he wants none of it. Jesus, you, you're not going to wash my feet. And Jesus looks at him and says, if I don't wash your feet, then you have no part of me. And Peter then responds, well then, Jesus, not just my feet, but my hands, my head, just wash everything. And Jesus says that those who have been washed don't need to be washed again. They just need their feet cleaned. Friends, if you've repented of your sin and trusted in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, Jesus has washed you clean. You don't need another bath. You have been spiritually baptized by the Spirit into Jesus Christ, pictured by your physical baptism. So the petition, forgive our debts, isn't a request for salvation that you have lost because of your sin. No, it's a request for Jesus to clean your feet. We don't need to take another bath. But our feet do get dirty in this world. We sin again and again and again. And this request is for those who have a share in Jesus, allowing us to return to Jesus, asking Him daily, Wash our feet. We confess our sin and we seek forgiveness. And what does Jesus do? He washes our feet again and again and again and again. Now, this brings up the question, what actually happens in forgiveness? When we say, I am forgiven or God forgives sin, what are we saying? We're saying that God has released us from a moral obligation or a consequence. When God forgives us, he absorbs the loss that we have caused. He renounces his claim that you and I give back to him the worship, service, and obedience that we have failed to give because Jesus has already fulfilled that obligation for us. Without himself becoming less, God absorbs our debt in Jesus. The old English idea is Jesus becomes for us our surety. Our surety. A surety is a person who takes responsibility for another's obligation. So the old hymn writer, Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off your guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice on my behalf appears. Before the throne, my surety stands. Before the throne, my surety stands. My name is written on his hands. And what's the result? My God is reconciled. His pardoning voice I hear. He owns me for his child. I can no longer fear With confidence I now draw nigh, and Father, Abba, Father, cry. Now it's quite possible that there are multiple individuals sitting here thinking, Isaiah, you don't know what I've done. I cannot be reconciled to God. He could never pardon me, never forgive me. You don't know what I've done or haven't done. It's too much. Friends, I say this gently and with compassion, but that statement is simply another way that unbelief masks itself. It may sound and feel like it's a humble confession, but in reality, you're suggesting that Jesus' death as the beloved Son of God, the sacrifice of God's one and only unique Son, you're suggesting that the true and better ram that was sacrificed once and for all for sin, you're suggesting that that sacrifice, that infinitely good, perfect sacrifice, was insufficient for you. You're suggesting that the infinite value of the death of the Son of God is not sufficient to cover your sin, to expunge your guilt. You're suggesting that in some way God was not pleased with the death of His Son in your place. And so He must require yours as well. Friends, that's not... The gospel. This is not humility. This is pride. If you are wrestling with whether or not God can forgive you for the terrible things that you have committed, then hear the words of Jesus as he suffers on the cross for that sin. It is finished, the work is complete. Justification has been secured. No other effort is required. And hear also the words of Jesus on the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. No matter how far our moral credit is maxed out, God offers us full and final forgiveness in Jesus. This is the ongoing good news of the gospel though we are both individually sinners and sufferers at the same time. We are victims who experience the sin of others, while at the same time we are victimizers who sin against others. While those things are both true, our daily forgiveness, our moral absolution is not found in our status as victims. Nor is our justification found in are groveling as victimizers, as oppressors. This is slavery, not freedom. The freedom from our debt, the removal of our guilt, is found in Jesus' work for us, in His life, His death, His resurrection. When we bow to pray, Father, forgive our sins, We are asking for multiple things. Thomas Manton is helpful here. He says first that we are praying for pardon. We are praying for the actual forgiveness of the sins that we have committed. And when we bow before God in prayer, Jesus is granting us this space, this opportunity to list our failings before God in freedom, confessing our sin, not hiding it, Not masking over it. Not pretending it never happened. There's no freedom from guilt in that. But laying it before God as the psalmist did. Who perceives his unintentional sins? Cleanse me from my hidden faults. Moreover, keep your servant from willful sins. Do not let them rule me. Then I will be blameless and cleansed from blatant rebellion. But second, we're also praying for the sense and comfort of being pardoned. We're praying that we would feel it, if you will. Not just that objectively we would experience it, but subjectively we would enjoy the sense that my guilt is gone. I have been forgiven. That this truth would find its way from my head down into my heart, addressing and affecting my interactions with my Father so that that sense of pardon results in comfort. And we also want that sense to increase. We don't want to just experience a taste here and there. This is actually one of the duties of a pastor One of our goals as your pastors is to assure you as the people of God that your sins really have been forgiven. And that when you return to Him in repentance, His arms are wide open. He's not stiff-arming you. When you repent in humility before Him, His arms are wide open to receive you. As the father running after the prodigal son He's ready to embrace you and receive you again. That's why for me, one of the most powerful moments of our daily or our weekly gathering is the moment when I get to look you in the eye after we confess our sins and I get to assure you that for all who have trusted in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, be assured that your sins are forgiven. This is is the good news of the gospel. Rest in it and be at peace. And then finally, we're also praying that the effects of this pardon would be experienced. That we would experience the freedom of a clean conscience and that we would experience freedom from that particular sin that we have just confessed moving forward. The longer I read the Bible, it's stunning to me that you can find no more realistic perspective on reality than what you find in the pages of Scripture. We see that in this text. Because close upon the heels of this request is a contingent reality. We sin against God. We need forgiveness, but others sin against us. Forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors. Statement number three Being forgiven results in being forgiving. Being forgiven results in in being forgiving. A forgiven soul is a forgiving soul. Now, understanding forgiveness in our cultural moment is a bit complicated. On the one hand, forgiveness has become a pathetic shadow of the real thing. Forgiveness now is about exercising power. Forgiveness is about you being a better, stronger, more improved you. Expressing forgiveness is about your holistic health. It's part of your self-improvement project to forgive others. But this shadow forgiveness removes the morality of the situation entirely. It removes the teeth of your just grievance against another person. The sin becomes a non issue. It's not about the sin, it's about you being a better you. And you can't be a better you without forgiving others. That's what we're told. But friend, what about the wrong that has actually been committed? What about the sin? Our culture has no answer for that, for there is no genuine moral economy in our culture because according to our world, again, morality is self-derived. It's self-expressed. It's self-described. It's culturally dependent. So it's changeable. It's shiftable. So you expressing forgiveness of another is you just becoming a better person. Don't worry about whatever sin they committed. So that's on the one hand. That's forgiveness on the one hand in our culture. On the other hand, real, genuine forgiveness is withheld. If you cross a moral boundary in our culture that someone or some group of people has set, there is no recovery. There is no absolution, only cancellation. No chance of restoration. You are forever shamed and shunned. Just ask J.K. Rowling. Rowling is not a professing believer, but she refuses to accept the cultural narrative that gender is fluid, and she expresses that publicly. She has crossed a red line. So even those actors whom she has made famous through her works now must distance themselves from her. And they must do it with the same type of zeal and moral outrage as anyone can read about in Hawthorne's classic The Scarlet Letter. The same sort of puritanical shunning. Found there. But friends, the forgiveness found in the gospel explodes both the shadow fake self improvement forgiveness as well as cancellation. The gospel is neither. The gospel in Christ, God offers real solid forgiveness for each of us as sinners. Owing to God a moral debt we cannot play. The sin is not downplayed to the point that the Son of God had to suffer and die for it, for your sin and for mine. This is no shadow fake, pathetic forgiveness. This is the justice of God poured out so that we might receive the righteousness of God. And at the same time, the gospel enables victims to express forgiveness to others, knowing without question that that sin hasn't been forgotten or overlooked. Christianity saves us from being canceled by God eternally and frees us from seeking our own vengeance and justice upon others by canceling them. Only in the gospel do we find the promise of genuine and complete justice for sin committed by us and against us. How so against us? Well, either that sin has been paid for already by the infinite suffering of the perfect Lamb of God, alongside my sin and alongside your sin. Or, that sin will be paid for infinitely by the sinner who rejects the Son of God. Either way, God's justice will take care of the moral debt that's been incurred against you. Do you remember the story Jamie read for us early, the parable? The servant has been forgiven an incalculable debt. If you were to do the math out, if you set a price of about $15 an hour for a working wage, the price that servant was forgiven, the the debt that servant was forgiven would equal about $6 billion dollars. And after receiving such grace, it was inconceivable that he would not forgive 20 weeks worth of labor, about $12,000. As followers of God, if you are hearing that forgiveness costs you something, that forgiving others will cost you something, you're hearing correctly, forgiveness is costly mcclay again to forgive whether one forgives trespasses or debts means abandoning the just claims we have against others in the name of the higher ground of love forgiveness affirms justice even in the act of suspending it it is rare because it is so costly So that means a man or woman whose sin is covered by Jesus covers others' sins against him or her. Forgiveness bears the fruit of forgiveness. A forgiven soul is a forgiving soul. And it's costly, but it's not nearly as costly as the forgiveness given to us by Jesus. Now, don't misunderstand what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not saying that I have the right to cover sin committed against you. He's not saying that. For me to cover sin that's been committed against you is itself sin. Period. But he is saying that for you, to cover someone else's sin against you is forgiveness. Forgiveness doesn't mean that we shouldn't lament injustice, nor does forgiveness become a hall pass to avoid seeking actual justice. Forgiveness doesn't mean that crimes shouldn't be prosecuted and that consequences shouldn't be experienced. But forgiveness does eliminate the basis for bitterness. Forgiveness in absorbing the loss actually frees us from carrying the weight of other sin against us. Carrying such a weight is not human flourishing. Carrying other sin in bitterness is itself sin. And it's a burden that you were never intended to carry, it's a burden that will crush you. Though you may genuinely be a victim against whom awful things have been committed, it is only the message of the cross that offers you true freedom from carrying that weight of sin. Sin that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has already borne with your sin on the cross. Ephesians 4.32 Be kind to one another, compassionate to one another, forgiving one another just as God also forgave you in Christ. And then Matthew six fourteen. if you forgive others their offenses, your heavenly Father will forgive you as well. But if you don't forgive others, your Father will not forgive your offenses. Being forgiven by God means you express forgiveness to others. And if you refuse to express forgiveness to others, you jeopardize your communion and fellowship with the triune God. And if you remain unrepentant in that lack of forgiveness, that may well be evidence that you have never yet truly experienced the forgiveness of God as your Savior. Forgiveness is costly. But what forgiveness costs us cannot compare to what we have gained in Christ. United to him, we've been given dignity and honor. We've been given a kingdom and sonship, a place and a people to belong to. We've been given a home, refuge, safety, and security.